136, the 136th Psalm. And uh, as you're turning there, I will just say that uh, as I was thinking about this morning, several weeks ago, as to uh, what I might preach this morning, I was thinking in light of kind of where we are as a nation, what we are experiencing and seeing with our own eyes, the decline of our culture. I thought, I, I want to preach from Daniel, Daniel 2, about God's eternal kingdom and its indestructible nature and that sort of thing. But more recently, I was in my morning devotions and uh, was listening to the Word of God, and I heard Psalm 136. And uh, God's Word is meant for us to, to read and do that internally, but it's also meant, especially the Psalter, I believe, to be read aloud. And so as I read from this portion of God's word, I encourage you to give your attention, your careful attention to it. We'll read verses 1 through 26. Psalm 136. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endures forever. To him alone who does great wonders, for his mercy endures forever. To him who by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endures forever. To him who laid out the earth above the waters, for his mercy endures forever. To him who made great lights, for his mercy endures forever. The sun to rule by day, for his mercy endures forever. The moon and stars to rule by night, for his mercy endures forever. To him who struck Egypt in their firstborn, for his mercy endures forever. And brought out Israel from among them, for his mercy endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his mercy endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his mercy endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his mercy endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, for his mercy endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his mercy endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his mercy endures forever. And slew famous kings, for his mercy endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his mercy endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his mercy endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage for his mercy endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his mercy endures forever. Who remembered us in our lowly state, for his mercy endures forever. And rescued us from our enemies, for his mercy endures forever. Who gives food to all flesh, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of heaven, for his mercy endures forever. Amen.
Let us pray again. Our great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is in your light that we see light. And we pray that you who delights in mercy would be merciful to us in shedding light upon this portion of your word. And by your spirit, help us to be doers of it. For your sake and your glory, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. This psalm, Psalm 136, by the older Jewish writers is called the Great Hallel, and perhaps you recognize that word from which we get our word hallelujah, to give thanks to or to praise Jehovah or the Lord, and it is for good reason that it was called that. As you can see, we are called here to give thanks to the Lord, for his mercy endures forever, and as we read throughout this psalm, there are these 26 or so phrases and declarations about God, his attributes, or his great works that he has done. And 26 times there is that refrain, his mercy endures forever. And so this psalm back in the days of Israel would have been sung in Solomon's temple, and it was uh, sung antiphonally, that is back and forth, I think it was the Levites, they would sing these declarations and a choir, even the whole congregation would sing back for his mercy endures forever. And so as we look at this psalm, we see here that there is this great call to thanksgiving, to give praise to the God of Israel. And uh, I don't know about you, but uh, you know, as, as it goes with me, sometimes I'm not as prone to thanksgiving, to having a grateful heart to the Lord, and when I look at my own circumstances and, and gaze upon them, maybe I forget for a while about God and his goodness, or I look at the news headlines, and you scroll through your feed minute after minute, day by day, hour after hour, and you forget about the mercy of God and perhaps are not as thankful as you should be. This psalm will help you. I'm convinced of that. And so we'll look at this psalm this morning. We'll see the call to thanksgiving, followed by three reasons for this call to thanksgiving. And then at the end, I hope to make about four specific applications. And so we're going to walk through this psalm and consider it briefly and then make four applications. Of course, we have here this great call for us, God's people, to give thanksgiving to the true and living God for his unceasing mercy. You notice there in verses 1 through 3, we have this great call. We have the call to thanksgiving. It is an earnest call. The psalmist says, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. If you look at verse 1, it says give thanks. In verse 2, give thanks. In verse 3, Give thanks, and we are given the reason, for he is good, it says there in verse 1. God is a good God. Why? His mercy endures forever. And so we are told here to praise the Lord, and it uses that word Lord there in the original for that word Lord, that, that title of God. It is his covenant name, Yahweh. He is the God who keeps covenant. He 
entered into covenant with Israel, a covenant of grace. And we'll talk about this a little later, as he has with you and me who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this God, through the psalmist, by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, calls us to give thanks to him, for he is good. He is the covenant-keeping God. His mercy endures forever. By the way, my translation, the New King James, it says mercy. Yours may say loving kindness or something like that, his steadfast love. And what's underneath that word or that phrase in the original is that Hebrew word hesed, the hesed of God. And men have tried to translate that into our language by capturing it this way or that way. And it's sort of all those things combined, God's mercy, his steadfast love, his grace, all of those things, it really re refers to his loyal, unfailing, steadfast love. That word, as it's translated in my uh, Bible here, the New King James, mercy is used some 240 times in the Bible in the Old Testament. And uh, it's used especially frequently in the Psalms. And just as in verse 1 we have that covenant name for God, Yahweh, Lord, this, this word for mercy refers to his covenant mercy, that which he expresses in his covenant of grace. And so we're to give thanks to God. We are to praise God. Now, when it says in verse 1, verse 2 and verse 3, give thanks, give thanks, give thanks, that word in the Hebrew really means to verbalize, to vocalize, to express to make a public confession of God's goodness and mercy. And so I, I quit, you know, making New Year's resolutions years ago because I hardly ever keep them, and, and unless it's a good one. And if you want to make one, you haven't picked one up, maybe it's this. This year, make it a year where you improve upon this, making a public confession of the goodness and mercy of God. And so here we are called to do this, to make it known. By the way, when we talk about this mercy of God, it's unmerited, it's undeserved. You know, when you think about mercy in and of itself, to show mercy to someone is to show benevolence, to show goodness to someone who does not deserve it. In fact, to the contrary, they deserve justice. And as we'll see here, like Israel of old, we deserve God's justice, but we have received his mercy. And so we're to give thanks to him for that. If you look there in verse 2, it says, to the God of gods. Now, this is not a declaration that there are many gods out there, and our God is just one of them. But God is the living and true God. Besides him, there is no other. He says that about himself. He is the, the only God. To worship any other god would be to worship a false god, and that's called idolatry. It's to break the commandment to do that. And, and what's the point here? Well, I think one put it well. He put it like this. The, the sense is, if the pagans worship their false gods with zeal, how much more should we worship and give thanks to the only true and living God? By the way, he's the God whose mercy endures forever. And then in verse 3, he's called the Lord of Lords. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords. There are many lords through the ages, many rulers, many kings. 
some queens, but God, the living and true God, the God of Israel, our God today, beloved, is the God who is the Lord of lords. And of course, if you fast forward to the New Testament, you'll read about our Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation, chapter 17, chapter um, 19. It says there that Jesus himself is what? The King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth, even today, Revelation 1.5 says. And as uh, Romans 13 tells us, if there is any civil authority, any governor in the world, it is because God has put him there. God has ordained the authorities that exist. And so God is the one who is sovereign. He is overall. He is in control. And we are to give him praise and thanksgiving. His mercy endures forever. And when the psalmist says his mercy endures forever, it is an everlasting love. It never fails. It never ceases. Like that psalm says, it's like the flowing river that never never stops and that's contrary to the false religions to those that are not the Christian faith in fact if you read about um, Islam and Muhammad even at the time of his death he was unsure as to how quote Allah would, would treat him after his death can't have assurance but those who belong to this God can and should have assurance why his mercy endures forever and so this living God the living and true God the God of Israel he is good he is exalted above every other God and he is to be praised for his mercy endures forever and so I mentioned there are at least three reasons as to why we should give thanksgiving to God in this psalm, and I've categorized them under three headings at least, and, and we'll look at those now. Well, what are the reasons? I think first of all, we should see here that we are to give thanks to God for his work of creation. That's in verses 4 through 9. The psalmist here clearly calls us, he summons us to this praise for this reason. And in verse um, it says to him alone does great wonders a wonder is something that instills reverence and awe amazement perhaps a little bit of perplexity in the mind and hearts of an individual it is something astounding he says great are his works and when he says great it could be the number of them are great or it could be referring to the size of his wonders the magnitude of his wonders and I think both are true when it comes to the living and true God. And so in verses 5 and following, he, he explains, he says, To him who by wisdom, verse 5, made the heavens. Verse 6, to him who laid out the earth above the waters, his mercy endures forever. Verse 7, to him who made the great lights. Verse 8, the sun to rule by day. Verse 9, the moon and stars to rule by night. And just as a footnote, because every commentator I read makes a note about it, I guess I should say something too. I don't know. 
But, um, you know, he is speaking here from our perspective on this earth, looking with our naked eye into the heavens. And so when he says that the moon gives off light or it's a light by night, we understand that it's reflecting the sun's light. But nevertheless, it does illumine the sky most nights of the year, if I'm not mistaken. And so he tells us to give praise to God and, and to do so for him creating the heavens, the earth, and the great lights of the sky. This kind of harkens back to Genesis, doesn't it? You know, the older I get, the more amazed and thankful I become for God's good creation. I love birds. I love to watch the birds, and it's amazing how God has created them so intricately and how I think their bones, at least some of them are hollow, how they can fly and do all of these things. They're just amazing. Or I look into a, a beautiful, beautiful blue sky, maybe with the white clouds, and, and I just say, thank you, Lord. You are amazing. This is beautiful. How much more beautiful must, must you be? We're called to give thanksgiving for such things as we see here. And by the way, he mentions the stars and the, the lights and the heavens at night. And, and one preacher gives thanks that God has not consigned us to the darkness. Can you imagine even in the day not having the sun for its light? And when it comes to the stars, you know, scientists, they've tried to number just the stars in the Milky Way, and they can only guess, they admit they can only guess, and they say 100 to 400 billion, maybe. And uh, there's no way to know, but I mean, I can't fathom trying to count the 400 billion myself. And, and yet in Psalm 147, verse 4, it says about God, he counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. And there's that little phrase in Genesis 1.16. He made the, the two great lights, the greater to govern by the day and the lesser to govern by the night. Then it says, he made the stars also. Just a little commentary. <laughs> Nothing too great for God. He made the stars. And then the psalmist to note, he says, to him alone, verse 4, him alone who does great wonders. There's nothing that compares to God and all of his majesty, his power, his wisdom, and all of his attributes. I mean, he created man. Man a little lower than the angels. Made after his image so that we are to, to go, as he commanded Adam, to go and take dominion of the earth, to be fruitful and multiply and so forth. And, and even after the fall of man into sin, uh, man has accomplished some really notable, noteworthy things. But those things that men invent or accomplish, maybe an Einstein or a Tesla or an Edison, they're, they're merely child's play when it comes to what God can do and what he has done. To him alone who does great wonders. And so as we think about creation here in this call to praise God, and his mercy in creation, we need to understand that the doctrine of creation is fundamental to the Christian faith. Let us not forget that in our day and time. Let us not take it for granted. Let us remember it, that as we confess in the, in the space of six days, God created the heavens and the earth by the word of his power from nothing in the space of six days, all very good. 
In fact, Hebrews 11.3 says it is by faith we understand that the worlds were formed or framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows forth his handiwork. You know, day, they utter speech day unto day and night unto night. And the knowledge of God through his creation is inescapable. And to believe otherwise is a matter of faith. To believe in evolution is a matter of faith. To have an atheistic worldview is a matter of faith. It is a flawed faith, no doubt. But this doctrine of of, um, creation is integral to the Christian faith. Now, when he, sell, he says here that we are to give thanks to God, that we are to praise God for his great wonders, he who made the heavens, the earth, and the great lights. I was thinking of uh, William Shatner, of all people. If you're old enough, you know who he is, and maybe you've seen that interview or that um, video of him where <clears throat> about a year or so ago, he was gifted this trip to outer space. One of the billionaires of the world paid for it, funded it, and all that. Well, I don't know, I think he said it was a 10-minute journey. And he traveled just through the Earth's atmosphere and just to the fringe of outer space. And, and all he wanted to do was look out of the window. Well, he returned. They came quickly back down, and the parachutes came out, and they landed safely. And he comes out of the vessel, and they interview him. And he's in tears, and he's emotional. And he says, that is the most profound thing I've experienced in my life. He says, I hope I never recover from this. And he says, I'm, I'm, we're just flesh and blood. And he's getting to the heart of it, but he's not there. And I, I don't mean to disrespect the man. I don't know him. He seems like a likable guy, but what an opportunity he had on two different occasions to give glory to God, to thank God for his mercy in creation. Well, who will glorify God? God has created the heavens and the earth for man who is to glorify God. And as an old Presbyterian preacher wrote nearly 200 or so years ago, he said about Adam and his original creation, he existed to give glory to God. He was to learn more and more about God. He, in fact, was the uh, interpreter of God's world. He was to learn and to render the tribute of adoration and gratitude. He says that he, Adam, was the high priest of nature and every mute thing, every dumb beast, every lifeless plant, the majestic heavens, the verdant earth, the rolling sea, mountains, cataracts, and plains, every province of being in which he saw the traces of the divine in creation were to find their tongue in him, in Adam, and through him to pour into the ears of the Most High their ceaseless song of praise. They spoke to him, and he was to repeat their language to the great supreme. That was Adam's calling in the garden. Of course, he fell into sin, and we with him, and all mankind, except for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here the psalmist reminds us of our calling to do that very, very thing. Now, There's a second reason we're given in here uh, for which we should give thanks and praise to God and and to do that, you know, audibly, to do it publicly. And that's in verses 10 through 22. 
We are called to give praise to God, to give thanksgiving to God for his acts of redemption. That's in verses 10 through 22, for God's redemption of his people. Now, by the time we get to the Psalms, the, the whole fall of man into sin, which happened, is recorded for us at least, in Genesis 3, right at creation, that's assumed. The fall into sin is assumed, and, and we need to understand that. And there's a lot that's happened since that time. And, you know, God appeared to Abraham. He made that promise that he would bless the nations through him, that he would give them a land, he would multiply his descendants, and and then God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and, and uh, he was to go tell near, uh, uh, Pharaoh to let his people go. And, and uh, all of that stems from that covenant, that, that gracious covenant God made to Abraham. In fact, in Exodus 3, it says that God remembered his covenant with Abraham. And he, he appeared to Moses and said, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so basically what I'm saying is that that whole exodus was based upon God's promise to Abraham because he was going to have a people who would serve him, who would worship him. In fact, it says in Exodus 3, on that mountain. And so here the psalmist calls us to praise God for that redemption. You know, he delivered Israel from Egypt. That's there in verses 10 through 15. In verse 10, it says to him who struck Egypt in their firstborn. That greatest and last plague that just broke the camel's back, as it were. The death of the firstborn. God did that. Verse 11, he brought out Israel from among them, out of servitude, out of slavery, out of the house of bondage. Verse 12, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. And if you're going to put yourself to work, your arms have to get stretched out. And so that's the figure of speech here that is being used by God's power, by his working, his doing. He's going to save, and he did save his people from the land of Egypt. To him, verse 13, who divided the Red Sea into two, you know, God held back the waters so that his people, which were being pursued by Pharaoh and his armies and their chariots, God divided the water like two walls so that his people could walk through. So the scripture says they were baptized. We were baptized into Moses going through. And so they were, they were spared from Pharaoh, from the waters. And then Pharaoh and his men, they came in after and God let the waters go. He drowned them. He killed them. Where do you give thanks to God for that? That's what it says here. Why? Because God was preserving his people. He was conquering, as we say sometimes, all his and our, his people's enemies. You see, Egypt enslaved God's people. Egypt prohibited, prevented God's people from serving him, from worshiping him. And whatever prevents God's people from serving him and worshiping him eventually must go. So he continues. He says he overthrew Pharaoh, verse 15. He led his people in the wilderness, verse 16. That's a whole series of sermons there, isn't it? God's people going through the, the wilderness. In verse 17, to him who struck down great kings. 
He slew, verse 18, famous kings. Well, who are some of those? He mentions two of the, the big ones in verse 19, also in verse 20. Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. Now, who are they? Well, basically, these two kings represented two nations that were two huge hurdles to God's people before they would get into the promised land and enter it. You know, God, he delivered his people through that great exodus, but it didn't stop there. They went through the wilderness and, and didn't stop there. They were to go in and to dwell in the land where he would give them peace, where he would be with them permanently. But before they could go in, he had these two kings. They simply on their way asked Sion if they could go through. He said, nope. And uh, he came out to fight them. And so God encouraged Moses through Moses' leadership. They defeated him. And they took all the land that uh, was the king's. Well, there's also King Og, and, and it was a very similar situation. And so God basically said to Moses, he says, Fear not, remember what I did for you with Og, or Sion rather. And so you can read about that in Numbers 21. And before that, you can read about the other kings in the book of Joshua. And uh, so God defeated these kings so that God's people would enter the land. In Psalm 135, a very similar psalm to this, it says there in verse 10, He defeated many nations and slew mighty kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his people. Remember, that was part of the promise. Not only a people, not only the blessing, but also the land. Well, there's a third area. Not only are we to give thanks to God and to praise him for his mercy in creation, his mercy in redemption, but also here for his mercy and his works of providence. Verses 23 through 25. Verse 23, it says, He who remembered us in our lowly estate. As humans, there's that sense in which we are lowly. We are not gods. We are but dust. We are dependent upon God for all things. He is the one who must sustain us. The Bible says that it is God who gives us life and breath and all things. He teaches us to number our days. And it says here, that he is the one who has remembered us in our lowly estate. Israel was lowly. Israel had a past. Israel had a history. And that history was a history of failure. But God's mercy never failed. God's mercy endures forever. In verse 24, you'll note there it says, that he rescued us from our enemies. Now that word rescued is interesting. It means that he rips us, that he tears us from our enemies. You know, have you ever left maybe two pieces of paper in the, in the sun for a while in your car? 
and you go to pull one piece of paper off the other and there must be some glue or ink or something they've molded together and you, they just you have to tear them apart well my friends my Christian friends brothers and sisters I think sometimes in this world like the Israelites we become a little too friendly with our enemies the world the devil even our own flesh as the Bible says and so God must separate us from our enemies as he did the Israelites as we are told here in verse 25 it says that it is he who gives food to all flesh not just the Israelites but to all flesh I love the, the image of Psalm 145 in verse 15 there in Psalm 145 it says the eyes of all who look expect the eyes of all look expectantly to you and you give them their food in due season you opened your hand and satisfied the desire of every living thing I just picture a horse or some animal eating grain out of a man's hand God he just reaches his hand down from heaven and says here have your daily bread have your food and he does that to all flesh we are told and then in verse 26 there's a bookend there of the psalm oh give thanks to the God of heaven for his mercy endures forever and so that's Psalm 136 briefly in a nutshell now what I want to do is, is briefly give four areas of application for us here today how do we apply this psalm to us this side of Calvary between Jesus's first and second coming even in our life right now right here today how can we apply it well I think first of all we have to see here that God's um, is he is faithful God is faithful to the promises he has made in his covenant of grace and uh, we in the Reformed world, we talk about covenant a lot. We talk about the covenant of grace. That's because it's in the Bible. And that covenant, that structure, that bond that God has made to himself or by himself to his people is the means by which he saves his people. It is the means by which he sent Jesus to the earth to accomplish that redemption, to uh, merit our salvation, to enable the forgiveness of sins that we share and you see the new testament church did not appear in a vacuum simply at pentecost no the new testament church grew out of god's old covenant people israel we are the israel of god galatians 6 says and and here we we must understand that their history therefore is our history now these things really happen God did create the heavens and the earth out of nothing. That was a miracle. God did redeem his people Israel. That really happened. That was a miracle. But we have to understand that we're connected to them. And when you think about that, that God's mercy endures forever, even towards his people Israel, think about Israel. That shows us that the salvation and redemption we share is all by the sovereign grace of God. Again, Israel's history, failure after failure after failure after failure. As the psalmist says, he has remembered us in our lowliest state. And brothers and sisters, you and I surely have been in a lowly estate 
dead in our sins and trespasses, at war, Romans 8 says, with the living God in our minds, rebels in God's universe. And yet, even so, he came and he showed his goodness to us, his mercy to us. Why? For his mercy endures forever. We need to remember then that the salvation we have is all according to God's promise. It's all according to his mercy. It's according to his grace, his covenant faithfulness, his steadfast love, his loyal, persistent, unfailing, unwavering, determined, relentless love. You need to hear that this morning. You have sinned, as it was prayed earlier and confessed, you have sinned this week daily in thought, word, and deed. God's mercy endures forever. God is faithful. God is gracious. Our salvation is according to his grace, according to the gospel of his son. And, and there's so much here. He, he overthrew, he conquered the Egyptians. How verse 12 says, by his strong hand, his outstretched arm. And if you study that in the scriptures, you will see that whenever God he moves in a mighty way, especially with the view of the redemption and salvation of his people. He uses that phrase. It shows up in Isaiah later. And he promises a new salvation that is coming. By whom? Isaiah 53. By the arm of the Lord. Who's in Isaiah 53? Jesus. The one who is led like a lamb unto the slaughter. The one upon whom the Lord laid the iniquity of us all. And so Isaiah 55, 3 says, Incline your ear, come to me, hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David. That is to say, God is telling his people, and he's telling his people today, he's telling you that I will make with you a covenant of grace, even the sure mercies of David. The same mercy that I showed upon a murderer, an adulterer, one who did not have his household in order. I will show that same mercy to you through the coming Messiah, through my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Even when we turn to Luke chapter 1, and as we often do this time of the year, there's the, some call it the Christmas story, where Jesus comes to earth and in that miraculous way and and um, the, the, the angel Gabriel appears and announces the coming birth of Jesus through Mary. And in Luke 1, um, she goes to Elizabeth. Elizabeth hears of this news and she blesses Mary. And then after that, beginning verse 47 of Luke 1, Mary sings her song, the Magnificat. She praises God. And listen to what she says about the coming of Jesus, the virgin birth of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus on the earth. She says this, verse 51, speaking of God, he has shown with strength his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of what? His mercy. 
as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his seed forever. The arrival of Jesus represents, it signifies, it conveys to us God's faithfulness to his promises, God's salvation for his people, the forgiveness and justification we enjoy through Jesus Christ. Why? Because he came to be born. He was to be born in order to live. He was to live in order that he might die and take upon us the curse that we all deserve. He was raised from the dead, God showing forth to the world that he approved of that sacrifice of his son on behalf of his people. We could talk about the exodus here. I'm almost done. We, we could talk about the exodus here, about how that signifies, as Luke 9 makes clear through the, the transfiguration. There's Elijah, Mo, Moses, and Jesus kind of passing the baton. It shows that the Old Testament points forward to Christ to come. Um, we could say much about that, but the exodus from Egypt represents, it signifies our salvation. For we too were held in bondage by that Pharaoh Satan. Even our own sin, we were enslaved to our sins, dead in sins and trespasses. But God baptized us into Moses, the greater Moses, who is Jesus. And he led us through, out of the house of bondage. Why? That we might serve him. Where did God take his people? After Egypt, after the wilderness, to Mount Sinai. How did he begin the Ten Commandments? He says, I am the Lord your God, who led you out of the house of bondage, out of the Egypt. And then he begins and he says, have no other gods before me. So that, that's the second area of application. Obedience. Paul makes the point in Romans 2. Do you not know that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? If you struggle with obedience, study the goodness and the mercy of God. And that means you have to study the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that should motivate you to obedience to him. There's a third area of application here, and that is assurance. Assurance of our salvation. How can I say that? Why? Because our salvation, the redemption that we share as Christians, children of God, depends not upon us, but his mercy. Not our works, but his grace, Ephesians 2.8. For by grace through faith are you saved, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. It is God who delights and shows mercy. He delights in it and he shows it to his people. As we talk about his mercy, let me ask you a question. Are you um, presuming upon God's mercy this morning? Are you disobedient? Have you been because you know God will forgive you? It says 26 times here, after all, his mercy endures forever. May we sin that grace may abound. May it never be, Paul says. But if this is you, at times it's me, at times it's you, and if it's you as of late, I'll remind you of 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Maybe you're here this morning, and you hear about this mercy. You say, wow, that's beautiful, that God would forgive a sinner, that he would forgive someone like David who committed adultery, who had uh, that woman's husband killed and had an illegitimate son. And God, 
uses him. God loves him. Can that be true of me? Of course. If you flee to Jesus Christ. That mercy is found only in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of the sure mercies of David. Last here, we ought to think about God's providence in our lives. Over all creation, it says there in verse 25, over all flesh, Jesus says he makes it to rain on the just and the unjust, right? He gives to all life and breath and all things as I've said, but also in a particular way, he shows his merciful providence to you and I, beloved, who believe in him. In Ephesians 1.22, we won't turn there, but Paul makes the point that Jesus is the head, that Jesus is ruling, Jesus is reigning, and he reigns in such a way for the benefit of his church. Romans 8, Paul spells it out plainly. Whether it's a church suffering as a whole, maybe in a foreign nation, maybe you know in this nation, who knows, or individually, you're sick, you lost your job, you have fighting in your family, whatever it could be. Paul says, he asks the question, is there anything that can separate us from the love of God? He says, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so God causes then everything in our lives to work together for our good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And sometimes his providences are a bitter providence. They're hard to swallow but they're for your good. In his mercy, he does that. Do you see it? In his mercy, he, he allows you to go through the trial. Why? To increase your faith, James 1, 2 through 4, to make us more like Jesus, to help us to trust him, to tear us away from our enemies, that which would prevent us from serving and worshiping the living God. And I'll close with this. As we think about God's faithfulness, as we think about the promise, as we think about the gospel and his providence, I love that footnote in John 13, 1. Jesus has entered into his sufferings, or he's about to, and John says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the death. Or to the end. He loved them to the end. Isn't that glorious? You say, why? How could Jesus love them and love us to the end? Say it with me. His mercy endures forever. Amen. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you.